Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Well, it's just me again today for this amazing, amazing lineup of highlights that we have from season two. If you were with us for season two and you listened to these folks that shared their expertise, shared their wisdom, and just really shared their experiences that they've been able to live over the last, some of them, decades, um, you know that we are in for a treat today. I was able to listen again to all these interviews over the last couple of weeks, and I learned so much from them once again. So... We're going to go ahead and get to it because we got a lot to cover today. And I know that you are going to be inspired by these little clips that we have that are representative of much, much greater interviews. So this first segment really has some clips that uh, talk about and discuss the importance of fathers in kids' lives. And the first clip is from episode 27, which is Dwight Taylor Sr. And he, in this clip, is responding to my question to him of why it is so important for little girls and big girls and young women to have a real authentic godly man and a godly father in their life. So I'll speak from the side of where the girls don't have a dad and and I'm gonna be transparent. Um, I was the guy who before I found my purpose took advantage of the girls mm. that did not have fathers. Mm. Um, I, I was very savvy with my words as a young kid. Um, I knew how to manipulate as a young kid. I knew how to lie since kindergarten mm. and do it very well and get people to believe what I wanted them to believe. And so it did, I'm a great listener as well. So it didn't take me long to introduce myself to a young lady, listen, Find out what it is that that she liked, what she didn't like, what she needed, what she didn't need, and find a way to put myself in a position to be in power. Mm. Okay, so so with that, the majority of these young ladies that I would talk to and that I would manipulate or 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 get over on, the majority of them didn't have any father figure, any male figure in their life speaking life to them, just saying that they were beautiful. There were so many girls that that you know I think about that were drawn to me just because I told them how pretty they were. Mm. Nothing else, like mm-hmm. on surface, nothing, no depth, just you look pretty today. And it was, all right, hey, whatever you want, right? But 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 with that, as a father now, I learned that I need to make sure that I'm always affirming my daughter. Yeah. I need to always make sure that I'm telling my daughter how amazing she is, how beautiful she is, how special she is, how, how much God is pleased with who she is because he is her creation. Like, I need to tell her that so when... The, the the younger me comes up to her. <laughs> she, she won't be wooed by that. She won't be yeah. wooed by that because she knows what the truth is. Thank you, Dwight, for those powerful and encouraging words. And I encourage you to check out his interview and really all of these interviews that you'll hear little clips from, just little excerpts from today, because there's so much more where all these came from. And that is also true for this next interview uh, that I was able to do with Victor Marks. This is part one of his interview. It's episode 38. And in this, in this clip, I asked him whether he agrees with me that we could alleviate so much of the orphan crisis if we could just disciple males to be godly men. And here's what he said. 
you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember the first time I made this statement after dealing with extremists and ISIS and you know all all this stuff and coming back to the U.S. I was at a men's event. It was packed. And I just said the greatest, I mean, the greatest danger and risk to the United States. It isn't terrorism. It's the lack of a father in the home. It's the lack of men being really godly men and making a difference. Hmm. I mean, on every level of society. And if, uh, and that's, you know, as we say that it's a hard truth, Rabbi. But if, if people would understand that and let, let, let their love for children and for what's right and honorable start in their home. And you and I have talked about this. We're dads of big families. Mm-hmm. It's never about perfection. Mm-hmm. It's just about direction. Are you heading in the right direction? You know, and for many people, uh, there are men out there who, you know, just bail. My, I mean, my biological dad was one of them. Didn't claim me as his kid, right? And mm-hmm. later in life, we it was a letter that he wrote to me saying, in essence, I'm sorry I was never there for you. Um, as a dad and I, I think I was around 20 when I got that letter or something and do you know uh, even though he wasn't a, he wasn't a dad to me at all as a, as a child he became a, a father to me as a young adult and as a man hmm. and, and we actually had a good you know good 20 years together uh, he was actually even uh, my best man in my wedding. Right. So I would just say to dads, man, if you've jacked up, messed up, blown up, regroup, man, regroup, uh, catch your breath, humble yourself, apologize, and then do your very best to be a dad, even if you're not a husband, even if that's not going to work out. Mm. But be a dad. Right. Be honest. I remember, you know, I have five children. When, when our kids had the teenage years, I think at one point we had three of our children were teenagers in our home. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then my wife was pregnant again, hormone. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I want to be a missionary, a solo rogue, <laughs> man, you know, <laughs> let me get. But uh, I, I remember I had a tie in with one of my youngins, a teenager that uh, just, uh, you know, when you're just butting heads and yep. you're going. Jeez, the Benadryl didn't work. And and I, I, I'm looking at my teenager, and I finally just said, stop. Look, I've never been a dad to a teenager. Hmm. Man, I, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. Right. I, I'm trying to figure this out. Can you help me? I mean, I remember being a teenager. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't have a dad help me. So forgive me. Help me understand you. What you know? Let let's work this out. That was one of the biggest turning points for that kid to go. Oh wow, you're, you're not just some jerk trying to enforce rules and regulations on me. You're trying to figure this out with love and care and uh, and compassion, just like the kids you reach. Right. I was like, okay, good. That worked. I got to remember that. <laughs> Well, with that from Victor, we're going to transition now into the world of adoption and foster care. And the first clip that we're going to have in this segment is from episode 22 is Jamie Ivy. And she talks with Kelly in this uh, about really what it was like for her during the first year after bringing her kids home after their adoption. And this is good for adoptive parents and really anyone who knows someone 
who has adopted or is adopting, which pretty much includes everyone everywhere. So listen closely. For now, for me, my tunes changed a little bit about how hard that first year was for my babies to come home. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about it, it doesn't, people in America have sometimes a skewed view unless they've walked through this about, well, they, aren't they coming into like a better situation? Isn't this better for them? Um, and it seems that way in our eyes, but they were ripped away from the only thing they've ever known, um, a new culture, new people, new language, all of these things. And so that first year was super hard for my kids. And so as a mom parenting, it was super hard for me as well. Um, we weren't attached. We weren't bonded. It's very different when you're bringing home a child who um, has lived their life someplace else. I read yes. a book um, called, oh gosh, oh, um, Forever Mom, What to mm-hmm. Expect When You're Adopting by Mary Osteen. And she said something in there that really clicked with me. She said, as parents, when we give love to the kids that maybe we've had since birth or we grew in our stomach and we give love to them, they reciprocate it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just what happens. Yeah. And then you bring a four and a half year old home and you give love to them and they don't know how to reciprocate it. Yeah. And as adults, sometimes that can put us into a little tailspin of like, what? You're mm-hmm. not, you know, we don't know how to handle that. And so I think that's what made the situation so hard for me in the beginning is I did not know how to handle giving love and not getting love back. Yeah. And so I think that's in no fault to anybody. It's no fault to my kids. It's no fault um, to anyone, except that's what I kind of want to talk about when I talk to people about that first year is just understanding that things aren't going to feel the same mm-hmm. on both ends mm-hmm. from your, your child to you and you to your child as maybe other kids that you have parented um, or walked through before. And so I think that's what makes those years so hard is kind of learning that dance and understanding giving love to a child and not having it immediately given back to you mm-hmm. is okay. And now we're going to go from Jamie with an adoptive parent to Diana Prikogko, who is an adult adoptee. And she's got such an amazing story that uh, we, we did not have in this clip, but I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to her interview um, to hear her story and how God has used her in amazing ways uh, from really a past that uh, she has no business even being alive today, let alone advocating for lives of the orphans in the United States. But this, this little clip that we have from her interview talks about her experience assimilating to her adoptive family. And, you know, it wasn't a smooth transition. And, and I think this will be very helpful to any prospective adoptive parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees out there to really understand this side of it. Once the honeymoon phase was over Hmm. and um, I realized real quickly that despite the fact that my family loved me and that I loved them, I didn't realize how much work relationships really are. Hmm. And I was never taught that. I was never, um, you know, in a consistent uh, environment where you got up every day, you had other brothers and sisters, you went to school, you had your routine, you had your um, discipline, and you um, you honored your parents, and you had chores you were responsible for. Um, none of those things are bad or wrong, but I was not used to those things, and. The biggest thing that was my struggle in the family was the fact that um, I did not know how to love or how to receive love in a healthy way. And so through this time of having my answered prayer and living in my dream home and having a family and a mom and a dad and three brothers who loved me, 
something just was still missing. And it was the fact that I needed to learn to receive love and Mm. to give love. Mm. And so we did have some ups and downs in the family. I pushed my family away for a very long time because I wanted to see, would they stick with me or would they send me back? And um, in my own twisted um, way of thinking, I thought that, you know, eventually they would get tired of me. They wouldn't love me because my birth mom wouldn't love me. How could they? Mm. And so, unfortunately, that's how I thought for a very long time. And my um, adoptive mother and father, they both looked at me and they said, you are our family and we are your family. You're not going anywhere and we aren't either. So quit pushing us away. And I remember just looking at them with tears in my eyes, thinking, how could you say that? You you can't love somebody that much. Mm. And, um, and something broke in me that day, and I just realized, these people, you cannot push them away. What is wrong with them? Yeah. And so, um, and they love me, and unconditionally, no matter what. And they were not going to send me back, and they didn't. And um, and I know why now because I'm a parent right now myself, and um, I, as an adult, understand what it is to love a child unconditionally. And I cannot imagine a parent hurting their child. You just have to be mentally unstable. I so appreciated how Deanna and so many of our other guests were just so transparent, really invulnerable in their conversations with me and with Kelly. And this next uh, guest, Tara Vanderwood, is no exception to that either. In episode 34, she shared so many, so many wise words with us. And this particular clip talks about how Adoptive families can help other families who haven't adopted or fostered children understand and help with the adoptee's loss and grief. I think parents first need to believe that there is loss in adoption. Like I said, I think the conversation is um, changing, that parents are seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think maybe years ago it was more the mentality of they've got a great family, raise them as if they're your own. Everything's going to turn out great. Mm-hmm. Well, we've learned from generations of adoptees that it's a little more complicated than that. Right. Um, and so parents entering into adoption, some have no idea that there's going to be this lifelong um, conversation that includes loss. It includes a lot of gain, but it includes loss and it includes some hard feelings sometimes. So I think, um, early on, even for parents who are considering adoption, um, agencies, social workers, we need to be educating prospective adoptive parents, um, about big picture of, you know what, you might just be envisioning adopting a little baby or adopting your five-year-old. Um, but let's think about that but let's look well beyond that as well and talk about some concepts and ideas that maybe you haven't given much thought to, you know, how do you see yourself handling X, Y, and Z 10 years down the road? I wonder if you've ever considered this when your child is 18 or when you're raising and parenting your child. Um, so parents need to get comfortable, um, with the loss and they need to take the lead in those conversations. Um, and again, you know, kind of goes along with talking to the kids about adoption. I, at the end of my, at, at the end of the day, want my kids to know my mom's in my corner. She understands this. She told me that I might even feel sad about this. And wow, 
I'm so glad I knew that. You know, they're probably not going to tell me that someday, but in their minds, I want them to have that comfort of knowing that, hey, I might not have all the answers, but I understand that there is in some t- in some ways, there's nothing easy about this being an adopted person, right? There's nothing simple about it in some ways. And so um, I encourage parents to talk about the full story, to talk about pre-adoption, to say things to their kids um, that plant seeds of adoption being both hard and good. Well, by now, after listening to that clip from Tara, after listening to the other ones, I expect that you're starting to understand why I was so excited to share these highlights with you from season two, why I was so excited about the amazing lineup we had in season two. And so I just want to take a minute now to encourage you to, to give us some feedback, not only on this show and these clips and the highlights and just really the lineup that we had, but, but the, the content of what we have. Give us feedback on who you think might be good on the show. Give us feedback on how we can do it better. Any thoughts you have on segments we can add, different ministries we can highlight, different people that would be able to enlighten us and encourage us and challenge us. We're, we're so open to those comments. We're getting some coming in and we're so thankful for those. Also, if you could review and rate this show on, on iTunes, um, really wherever you listen, if they have the ratings, that helps get this out to more and more people. And you know, we've been downloaded over 20,000 times in 70 countries. And we hope that that continues to grow because I know that these people that are on this show are so, have so much wisdom and are, are, can be so helpful to so many people around the world. And this next guy that we had on the show, I was able to interview is Jason Weber. And we're going to change it up a little bit here. It's not going to be kind of advice to adoptees or to uh, adoptive parents. This is really talking about different ways to get engaged in foster care. Jason is the, the director of the National uh, Foster Care Initiative with Christian Alliance for Orphans. And so he really knows what he's talking about when he shares with us different ways that anybody, anybody out there can get involved in the lives of foster youth and foster families. Yeah, I think a lot of times when we go to our churches and we start talking about foster care, we have a tendency to default to uh, talking about the need for adoptive and foster homes. Uh, And no doubt that is a huge need. It's the biggest need we have. The problem is that when we talk to a group of people who have not previously thought about foster care that much um, about adoption and, and foster parenting, You know, over 99% of those people probably do not feel ready to even consider that at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a better approach and what we encourage people is to really, when you're in front of a group of people like that, to aim more at the middle, to say, you know, there are other things. Everybody has gifts, personality traits and experiences that make them who they are. And those gifts, personality traits and experiences can fit beautifully into a number of different roles in foster care besides foster parenting and besides adoption. And if everyone would use their gifts and their own, you know, leanings toward um, a particular role in foster care, it would make a huge difference in the system and it would eventually result in a lot more adoptive and foster parents. And so this piece is just a fun piece. It it kind of outlines um, seven different types of people um, and the kinds of um, 
you know, personality traits and experiences that they might have and how, and how that might fit into foster care. So we talk about the administrator. We talk about the advocate. We talk about the ally and the ambassador. We talk about the intercessor, someone who just is great about gathering needs and praying for them. We talk about the coach who can come alongside, um, biological families uh, or come alongside a, a, an aging out youth and just mentor them and coach them. We talk about the recruiter. So there's all these different roles and, and you can go through this piece and you can kind of evaluate and say which ones of these, and most people are more than one, uh, which ones of these apply to me and how can I particularly engage and make a difference for kids in my community? Well, with those great words from Jason, we're going to transition to our next segment. And th- this one is uh, a three different people telling us ways that we can really connect with kids from hard places. These principles apply to not only kids from hard places, but really any kids in our lives, biological children, adopted children, other kids in our communities. So I just encourage you to engage this, listen closely and challenge yourself to think about how you can really connect with the children that God has placed in your lives. The first first clip here is episode 25. It's Mandy Howard. And Kelly was able to talk with her a lot about the TBRI principles, about different ways that she's able to help families. Um, but this particular question talks about the power of TBRI principles. And Mandy provided an answer that all parents can learn from. We pick up in the middle of her, her response, so I encourage you, if you're really interested in hearing the beginning part, to go back and listen to the episode. But she's really telling us here ways that we can proactively help our kids when they're struggling. One of the big ones that we always run into is transition, and every parent, regardless mm-hmm. of uh, their child, um, has run into this. So pick up at the end of the school day, so that transition from the end of the school day into being at home and doing homework and, and all of those things. So you know, thinking about that, how can you help a child in that moment? So some of the things that we know, uh, taking a couple moments at the end of the day, even if it's in the car, um, on the on the drive home, to turn off the radio and say, tell me about your day. Mm. Right? And just connecting with their spirit and helping them to, to feel heard in that moment, um, empowering their body. They're usually tired, thirsty, hungry mm-hmm. when they get home from the day. They've sat still for the last seven hours. Um, so, you know, before we try to dive into doing things like homework, give them a snack, give them a drink. Um Give them some choices. So would you like to go uh, run around and, and play basketball for five minutes and then do your homework? Or do you want to do your homework and then go play basketball? Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of empowering their bodies in that respect. And then in terms of correcting, helping them to have some proactive strategies in place. Uh, so if they know they get dysregulated during homework time, what are some things in place that you can have for them? Have a calming plan available. And so that might mean uh, when they start to feel their body getting revved up, right? Their, their mm-hmm. engine, like to say their engine's going on red, um, have things in place during a time that you've set up, um, you know, when you guys are in a good place. So what are some things that help you calm? Well, this type of music, um, maybe sitting in a certain spot of the house, you know, having a snack, having some water and helping them to regulate their own emotion during that time. So when they start to feel themselves going towards that meltdown, being able to say, 
what do you need to regulate mm. and teaching them how to regulate their own emotion. Um, one of the things that we know is regulation is taught. So in, in order wow. to do that, it needs to be mentored by a intentional, caring, loving adult. Um, and until someone teaches that child how to regulate and walks them through that process, they're not going to learn how to do it on their own. Thank you, Mandy, for that great wisdom you were able to share with us in that answer and really in your entire interview. Well, this next clip is from episode 21, and it was Josh Ship who shared with us something that, you know, really I didn't think that we would talk about on this show, and that's Babe Ruth. He has a thing that he calls the Babe Ruth method that helps us to connect with kids who struggle in their ability to trust. And so here is what he was talking about with his Babe Ruth method. What if you're working with a kid? Um, what if you've adopted a kid that has been, you know, validly been let down, burnt, had their trust broken by adults? And so, again, understandably, mm-hmm. they're a little, little timid, a little skittish, um, you know, to put it lightly, of, of trusting adults and specifically of trusting you. So I've kind of thought through this this method, and and I'll explain it to you. And it, and I think it's it, it's very subtle and nuanced, but it's I've seen it be extremely effective in countless families and and kids that I personally work with. I, I just call it the Babe Ruth method, which is this. Apparently, back in the day, the Babe, Babe Ruth, the baseball player, um, at some point in some game, like in the twenties. He picks up his bat. He's at bat. He picks up his bat. He points at the um, left field wall as if to sort of declare, hey, I'm going to hit a home run over there. And then the shocking thing is that allegedly he did it. Mm-hmm. So so there's kind of two parts to that. Number one, call your shot. And number two, follow through. And our tendency with most kids is just to follow through, right? So let's say you're working with a kid and you and you kind of see, let's say you're a caseworker, you're working with a kid, you see the kid doesn't have school supplies that they need. Your tendency is just to kind of follow through, just to almost sort of blindside the kid and be like, hey, I noticed you didn't have any supplies. Um, we got some at the agency, bam, here you go. And you just sort of blindside them. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you know that that kid Uh, is distrusting of adults, you need to kind of take that, intentionally take that extra step, which is to first call your shot, Mm. which would mean say to that kid, uh, you know, hey, Phil, I noticed you don't have any school supplies. That's got to be frustrating. I've got some at the agency. Uh, Can I stop by Wednesday, four o'clock after school and and set you up with some school supplies? And Phil's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, that'd be nice. And so that is calling your shot. And then step two is following through. Now, mm. the significance of this is, is that you are, you are giving that kid data, proof, real scaffolding, and beginning to reprogram their mind that there are indeed adults like you that they can trust. Mm. And, you know, to me, particularly with teenagers, if you want to have influence, you must have trust. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of building this trust is not like just so you can be a Santa Claus of school supplies, right? but that so one day when you need to have that really difficult conversation, call them on the carpet, ask them that important question that could, you know, take their life in one direction or another, that they will be listening to you because you first built that trust. 
Well, as with all these clips, there's so much more to that interview with Josh that uh, you definitely want to go back and listen to because he has just a special way of really being able to connect with youth, connect with teens. If you have any teens, uh, I encourage you to just listen to Josh's stuff. He's got some mentoring programs and some other things that he talks about um, on the show that we were able to do as well as on his website. Well, the next clip we have is from episode 40, the last episode of season two. And it's from John Bergeron with the Austin Stone Counseling Center. And I asked him how his work in biblical counseling helps families in working through issues. And you know, his answer responded to that question, then gave us some great bonus information. So here it goes. I love that question because I think it's one that, that a lot of people wonder about because I think they've experienced um, kind of two extremes in terms of, of counseling. And one is kind of what you described, which is, I would say, more of a religious counseling in that if I do these kinds of religious things like pray more, read my Bible more, uh, get other people to pray for me, then then things are going to turn out okay. It's kind of one extreme. And the, the other extreme is, is in kind of an opposite direction is the idea that, well, because, you know, these kids have been through so much that, that really we don't have what it takes. And the Bible really doesn't speak much to that. So we need to go to, you know, science and the experts to find out what it is we need to do as parents to help these kids heal. And I think either one of those extremes leads us in the wrong direction and will cause us to do things that, that aren't helpful and loving and healing for our kids. Because, you know, on the the expert science end of things, there's a lot of questions that science can't answer and it was never intended to answer. Uh, questions about, you know, purpose of parenting, uh, the idea of values, what what's important uh in, in terms of parenting and what's more important than other things. The, the whole idea, issue of identity, um, science doesn't tell us who we are. It, it describes, you know, a human animal and how that animal's brain works and how it's impacted by experience, but it doesn't tell us these much more important things and ultimately doesn't lead us to a place of, of ultimate healing because it only deals with, with really the physical um, aspects of, of, of human existence and, and the spiritual is entirely forgotten. And so I think in, in between those two poles is where I, I spend my time working and how do I, you know, help families utilize what we're learning through observing God's creation and how, you know, this, this human being is affected by its environment and how it develops along with, with biblical scriptural truth, the gospel that, that answers the question about what went wrong with us and what went wrong with our children right. and how do we help them heal from that? You know, what's the answer to that? Well, now we're going to transition from our segment on how to connect with kids from hard places to clips of people that are working around the world and wrestling with so many of the difficult issues that we are engaging on this show. The first clip that we have here is from episode 24, which was an episode that I was so excited to do. It was a gamble, but I think that the gamble paid off uh, extremely, extremely well. It was with Todd Guckenberger and Rebecca Knepp. And the reason we did this interview with both of them is because we had some people that, that uh, asked for it. We had some people that said, you know, I'd love to hear these two folks talk with each other. It's something that I want to do more of. I want to get people on calls together, in rooms together to really discuss these issues that, you know, a lot of people probably think they disagree on. 
you know, vehemently potentially. But when you get them to sit down with each other, you really have some really cool things happening. And that interview definitely had some cool things happening where afterwards they even talked about different ways they might be able to collaborate together. But this, this clip, um, it picks up in the middle of a discussion they were having, having about the tension that we all face in this work that we're doing around the world, in this work that we're doing in the developing world, in this work that we're doing in the United States, really. But it's, it's the tension we face about the, with the broken reality that we live in and working in that reality, but also constantly striving for excellence, constantly striving for the best practices that we know we need. And here's what Todd and Rebecca had to say about that. I think I think th- that probably is our greatest challenge when we when we look at in specifically looking at other alternatives. You know, one of the things I think I said in, in the previous podcast was we, we don't look at it as a continuum as much as look at it as best alternatives for individual children. And that may be a point of difference. I'm not sure. But but because each country is so unique and each government is so unique. We've found it that we've got to look, okay, what is possible right now? How do we meet the best standards of care in this particular season, wherever the government is, or even the caretakers are, or the children's home providers. Um, so it's, it's really challenging. It's not that we don't want to, 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 to move up on the spectrum or the continuum, but it, it's really, we're really looking at the practical level and going, Hey, we have to actually make it the best that we can right now because culturally and government wise or even local church, we have so many challenges to, to confront it. We've got to make it the best as we, the best we can for right now. Yeah. Thank you point to a really, really important tension in this whole work around care reform, Todd. And that is that the, the, what do we do to make sure that there's really high quality services available for children today, as well as how do we keep moving on that journey towards making sure there's really well-balanced and well-rounded services for children in the long term. And it's such a difficult line to walk and tension. And we've got, we've all got limited sets of resources. We've all got limited sets of human resources that we can pour into this issue and that tension between do I invest it in bringing up the standards of care with what's already there or do I invest it in in, in more in the transition? And I think we actually need both. Um, I think we need people to do both. And I think that's where the collaboration piece is really, really important. Um, and that's something that we within the, the Christian faith-based sector, I think, can really do well is collaborate well so that we can pull our resources and make sure that we are working towards the gaps in those um, in that spectrum or continuum of services being developed so that we're not always where we are today saying, well, we don't have foster care or we don't have sufficient family preservation services or we don't have kinship care services available. Therefore, all we have is still group homes or residential or or more stronger interventions we need to be redirecting some of those resources to make sure those things are evolving and are emerging without compromising the care that is available and needed for children right now here today and it is a really difficult line to walk from that great conversation with todd and rebecca we move to a man that uh, just impressed me so much, has impressed me so much over the last few years as I've gotten to know him. But in this interview, I, I said it in the interview, and I, I will definitely say it again, I, I absolutely love this interview. It was one of uh, the ones that encouraged me and challenged me the most to, to really stretch my thinking in some of these ways. But Matt Storr Vision Trust in episode 37 talked about uh, really what advice he would give people wanting to start or work with an orphanage anywhere in the world. 
And his answer dove into that uh, question, responded to that, and, and really got into so many of the things that we discuss on this show. Got into some poverty alleviation, got into family strength, and got into some other things. And so just listen closely for those things and, and learn. Learn from this man. I'd say do your homework. Um, really put your hammer down. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and just focus on what's best for the child. So one of the basic things I would do is just realize like statistically, you know, um, for us, we have about 16,000 kids. Only 30% of the kids are, have lost one or both parents in our 16,000 kids. We have 205 programs around the world, but only eight of them are orphanages. Um, in Central African Republic, we have our after-school programs and I, I bring that up because there's 11 locations, about 600 kids we're serving, and every one of them are double orphans. Mm. And they're living with families. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so how did we get there, right, to answer your question? Right. I'd say, I'd just say, <clears throat> you know, um, there are alternatives to to the orphanage sometimes. And look for opportunities where the community naturally wants to bring kids into their home as opposed to the easier route of creating an orphanage. And I I say that it's not easy to run an orphanage, but think about it. You have full control. Right. So a lot of our solutions, you know, well, let's build an orphanage. We'll bring the kids in. We'll get great leaders and we'll do a great job developing them and we'll have control. Well, the kids are safe. Um, We'll be able to invest in their lives 24 seven um, and we'll be able to help, you know, 10 to 100 kids. But there are, all alter- are, there are alternatives out there. And for example, maybe we don't pursue them because it's more difficult. And Phil, I mean, if you let me, I share a couple examples Go of the it. difficulty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the, the you know, so imagine this um, grandma is willing to raise up her four orphaned grandkids. It's classic, right? You got the bookend generation because the middle generation died from AIDS or, or some problem. Right. And but grandma sees that there's an orphanage down the road opening up. And wouldn't I mean grandma's like, hey, you you raise my kids for me, right? Right. Because she's struggling. Mm-hmm. So we have a choice to make. We can do the easy thing. And I again I don't mean easy like running an orphanage is easy. I'm saying it's easy because you, you have control. Right. So we say, we'll bring the kids into our orphanage. But what we've done there possibly is remove that child's family from their life when their family exists, when their family was actually willing to raise them, but they're struggling. So we have an option here. We could go back to the family and say, what do you need to create capacity in your family to care for your own grandkids? How could we help you raise your own kids? How can we invest in the life of the kid spiritually, in their health, and in their success through education? Are there alternatives? And there are. And that's kind of the perspective of Vision Trust. If It's sort of like the orphanage is more of the last resort. Right. Um, and really our first goal is that the kids live with a family member. So that's where a school can come in handy or an after-school program can come in handy. The, the key is <clears throat> registering the kids in a program so that there is someone every day looking out for the kid. Yeah. Because you know, if, if they're in that poor community, 
that's when they're at risk for being trafficked. That's when they're at risk of being sold into early marriage. That's when they're at risk of being forced to do child labor at an early age and never go to school. So if they're registered in some kind of a daily program, like a school or an after school program, we can check in on the kid and then basically supplement the care they need to be successful. This next clip in the segment on uh, people working around the world is a, is a man, Billy Chonway. Episode 23 brought us this, this amazing story of a man in Zambia who just had a, a, a big dream. Really, it was a small dream at the time, but it turned into a big dream. It was a, a small idea of Orphan Sunday to have in his little church in Zambia. And as you know out there, most of you know, listening to this, you, you've heard of at least Orphan Sunday, and it's turned into a global movement. And Billy, in that episode, told the story of Orphan Sunday, but, the, but this clip is on the tail end of him talking about that story. And it, it really is a story about the power of a small gift that we can give, a small gift that a woman gave. And this really is a modern day example of the widow's might and the loaves and fishes story that we read about in the Bible shows about how a small thing can go so far. So listen closely and hopefully you'll be inspired to do little things and see how God can make them explode. And allow me to quickly go into a story of one woman who actually uh, demonstrated a willingness of God's children when they want to obey God's word, regardless of their limited resources or, or, or situations. Because you are talking about Africa, or at this stage, where we were supposed to be expecting help from somewhere or somebody to come in and assist. But it's a challenging story where people with limited resources, people with uh, not enough, could step out to obey the word of God. And uh, in this particular situation was one Sunday, I just said, it's like we didn't have much. We didn't have enough offering. We didn't have enough clothes. Then I said, please, we have these children. Some of them they have not eaten. Some of them they don't have clothes. Give what you have. God will definitely bless you. There is a command in scripture that when you care for the poor, God will surely remember you. And one old, old woman, I think she was in the 70s by then, she stood up got out of the church, she went home and she took a cabbage, a piece of cabbage, one, which was remaining. And that's the only one she had for that week. And she obediently, willingly gave. And when she gave, I asked in the church, who can take this? We don't want to cut it in pieces. And then after people talking and coming to the elders who were in charge, one lady, widow, with three children, she was given. The reason she was given was that at that particular day, they have stayed three days without food. Mm. And they were living on either water or just not really food that you can say this is food. And then it was a blessing. 
they celebrated for them to receive that cabbage. Mm. And that story made a difference that day because other people now started running out of the church to go and buy bread, others running out of the church to go and get uh, their, their, their food in their house and come and share with the widows and the orphans in the church. For me, that was a turning point of our program, which we, we used to call Orphan Sunday mm. by then. I was so much blessed to see how God's children could willingly, sacrificially desire to live and obey the word of God. Wow. You know, I've heard that story a few times and every time that I hear it, I'm encouraged. I'm inspired. I'm inspired to go do something, to do something with excellence, to, to give something of my life and let God take it um, and do with it what he will. Well, in episode 28, we, we were able to hear from another man who has taken his life and, and really just given it up to God to say, what can you do with my life? And he moved to Haiti a few years ago with his wife. And what God has done with, with that, uh, you hear about in the episode. And it's so encouraging to see how it's, it's gone not exactly how he expected, but it has tr- produced tremendous fruit. And in that episode, he talks about Heartline Haiti, talks about the work that he and his wife Tara are doing there. Um, And in this clip, I asked him about a blog post that his wife Tara wrote a little bit before my interview with him. And it talks about two women at the maternity center. And, you know, I just asked him to share with us about how, you know, about that, that blog post and really how they prevent orphans and empower women at their maternity center. In that interview, he also talked about all kinds of things, child sponsorship, short-term missions, male discipleship. But this really goes into how they really seek to empower women and help them to keep their babies and have lives that are so honoring to God. I wish that was an isolated incident, that story, but it's all too common and very regular. Um, And... Obviously, it's heartbreaking and difficult. And honestly, it would be easier to turn away from it and to try to take a higher level approach to say, we're going to come in and, you know, distribute hundreds of thousands of condoms to keep these things from happening. But those kind of solutions don't work, at least not in our experience and not in the cultural context we find ourselves in. And the way to truly connect and to truly minister cross-culturally in this context is through relationship. And large-scale programs and institutions do not breed relationships that affect change, in my belief. And we feel very strongly about that. And even though we'd love to have a maternity center that was able to deliver hundreds of babies a month, um, we know that that would be too much to take on and maintain the relationships we have because those relationships are where you're able to break through some of the cross-cultural barriers, boundaries, overcome um, things like superstitions, uh, cultural misnomers, uh, and really in a a deep lack of education when it comes to certainly medical care um, and a, a lot of misinformation. And um, we're able through the deep relationships that are forged in our small program, which is only um, 
able to take in about 60 women at a time. We've recently grown and expanded, which is exciting. But um, this isn't a maternity hospital with with hundreds of women lined up having babies. This is a woman coming for a pregnancy test and being identified early in the pregnancy as high risk um, or, you know, we, we take it's very difficult. We turn away far more than we're able to admit, but we take those cases that have the greatest needs that we can affect the most change and where we see, um, you know, otherwise this is going to be a risky situation. So a lot of older moms and a lot of first time moms and a lot of teenage girls. Well, that clip just gives you a taste as with all these clips, just gives you a taste of the work that Troy and Tara and and the rest of Heartline Haiti are doing, um, down there in Haiti. And, And I just encourage you to get to know them better. Um, check out their website, check out that interview, the full interview in episode 28. And, you know, this next man uh, was episode 30, uh, Ian Forber Pratt. Ian's working in India and he inspires me so much. He just blows me away. His life um, that you hear about, Kelly was able to do this interview and I said it in that interview and I'll say it again. I was totally jealous that Kelly got to do this interview because I just love Ian. I just love him. He's such a collaborator. He's a guy who just gets into the muck, gets into the, the, the difficult, really difficult issues and figures out how we can make change and how we can do these things that just seem so daunting, seem impossible. But he just gets into that in mess and says, you know what? There's got to be, there's got to be a way we can do this. And he figures that out. He figures out that way because he knows he has these big God-sized visions and he knows that they can get done, but it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take really smart work. And so, you know, in this, in this clip, Kelly asked him, um, what some of the barriers are to keep people from taking kids from hard places into their homes in India and what the barriers are to family preservation being more of an option for people in India. Really what he thinks he can do about it. And he answers this question and then goes the extra mile and gives you a snippet, gives you just a, a glimpse into why I'm so blown away by this man. So really, you know, listen closely and take some notes. Those are absolutely two different answers mm-hmm. as well as intertwined answers. Mm-hmm. So to start with the last one talking about institutions, you know, as in with many developing nations, as we've seen around the world, when institutionalization is the only way of care and protection for children, or at least the high majority way, it's very difficult for that system to change. Number one, because it's become a habit, but also in that habit, there also have become some very bad practices. Mm. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that in India right now, all institutions cannot be gotten rid of right away. It's not possible. There has to be a transition and there has to be a multiple range of options, I believe, Mm -hmm. for children. But focus on the fact that family is best for children when safe and appropriate. And that's really, really important. Um, That transitions me into the answer to your first question, the idea about family preservation. When we first started polling people and surveying people and talking about the concept of foster care, the overwhelming response was, we believe foster care is a good idea, but we wouldn't do it ourselves. And the reason they wouldn't do that themselves is due to the stigmatization in society of having a child of unknown background in your home. 
because in India there is huge stigma about the hierarchical nature of society, period. Caste and religion and economic boundaries. But you know what? We like to think in the West that doesn't exist. It's it's alive and well in many, many communities mm-hmm. in, in the West. And so we're dealing with human nature here. And when you're dealing with human nature, if you look at social change research, there's a lot of people who have done a ton of research about how a community or a country or a state or whatever adopts a new idea. And some of that research shows that there are really clear benchmarks. For example, there's some evidence-based research out of Stanford University um, that's a little bit dated now, but it was made to be universal. Um, And the the research says that if in a community, 5% of that community, just 5%, so you can relate it to whatever community you have, whether it's a a club that you go to, if it's your children's basketball team, if it's your church group or your school. If you introduce a new idea to that community and 5% of the people buy into that idea, it's considered embedded into the society. So if you take Udaipur where I started and think that there are about 600,000 people in Udaipur, once 5% of those people bought into the idea of foster care, it was embedded. And buy-in means they don't have to become foster parents themselves. They just have to be willing to talk about, positively advocate for the idea. Then this evidence-based research out of Stanford says that if just 20% of the community buys into an idea, it's unstoppable. There's enough critical mass behind it. Mm -hmm. There are enough people that have enough oomph behind them that it can move forward. Now, there's one other piece of information that's super interesting. In order to get 5% buy-in in a community, you need at least 50% awareness. And awareness means people could hate the idea. So let's talk about Udaipur again. Out of 600,000 people, if 300,000 people, 50%, know about foster care, just know about it. They could tell you and I that foster care is the most horrible idea ever, but they're aware. If they're aware, automatically 5% buy-in happens. And that 5% buy-in is embedded and helps us move to 20%. And that, if you understand that social change, communities are going to resist any type of new thinking and any type of care reform. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. Because in that resistance becomes solidarity. It comes out of that. It's human nature. And so as India, as a whole of 1.2 plus billion people, Mm -hmm. if we try to take on the entire country, we'll go crazy, literally crazy. Mm -hmm. But if we go community by community and look at both macro and micro social change and have a lot of fun bridging those things, we're unstoppable because it's part of development. And the greatest part of all of that is it comes back to the fundamental thought that children are best in families. And there has not been one person that I've met that doesn't agree that children are best in families. Mm -hmm. They might think that care and protection of children right now in our current capacity is safe for an institution. They might think that it's very dangerous to have children in foster homes because what if they are exploited or abused or whatever. But then the argument comes along that those things happen in biological families as well. 
and that our responsibility as a country, as a community, as a globe is create systems that first and foremost keep children safe. Mm. And once we do that, I mean, everything's moving forward. With those great words from Ian, we're going to transition to our next segment, which, which goes into how we can really communicate and work with each other when it, it often seems that we're so far apart in our beliefs and convictions. You know, as most of you know out there, um, unless you've been kind of digging your head in a hole and not, not listening to not engaging online, you know that there's just a lot of division today in our world. There's a lot of vitriol. There's a lot of hate. And, you know, we really need to figure out ways to not just get along, but to really engage each other, to really engage in healthy ways into conversations, into life-giving conversations, into real reconciliation in, in every aspect of our lives. Because that's how we're going to be kingdom builders. That's how we're truly going to have societies that help each other to flourish and help the vulnerable to flourish. And in episode 26, Russell Moore talks with us how we can effectively engage each other um, and engage others uh, that disagree with us and vehemently often, often vehemently disagree with us. Sometimes with vitriol, sometimes with true just hate. How can we engage those people? And how can we have real life-giving conversations with them? How can we encourage reconciliation and forgiveness? Well, I think one of those ways is to, first of all, have a, a sense of compassion that sometimes the, the really hostile reactions that we are getting are coming from a place of hurt. And so um, I, I remember, for instance, uh, there was uh, when I was a college student, there was some sort of pro-life demonstration. Uh, that was happening on on the campus and I saw this couple I didn't even know them but I came across them and the 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 young man was angry and red-faced and shaking his fist um, at the pro-life uh, demonstrators a very peaceful pro-life demonstration and the wife or the, the young woman was turned around and crying you don't have to be a psychic uh, to realize what is probably going on in that situation. Um, the, the abortion culture and, and really the, the whole denigration of human life, it, it, it harms people. It doesn't just harm the people that it treats violently. It, it also harms the people that it, that it promises to offer solutions to. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you're going to have people who are coming from a deep place of hurt for some reason or other. And so we, we talk to them patiently. We talk to them kindly. Uh, but we also we also speak openly uh, about what it is that we that we believe. And sometimes, you know, usually with these sorts of issues, you're not going to have a 20 minute argument that ends with one person saying, you're right. Of course, right. I surrender. That's, this is not the way this is not the way human beings work. Typically, you're going to have people who consider the sorts of conversations that they have and they consider them uh, sometimes over a long time. I mean, just think about the, the ways that on the issues where you have changed your mind, 
Uh, and I can think of, you know, sitting right here, probably a dozen, a dozen issues that I've changed my mind about. I never did because anybody humiliated me in an argument. <laughs> Uh, it, it was always because somebody who had credibility uh, that comes with uh, comes with love, uh, who who spoke words that I considered and came to see as being truthful and made sense of the world. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's the way we need to handle those who disagree with us. And now from Dr. Moore, we're going to go straight to Gabe Lyons in episode twenty nine. He talked about, he kind of really piggybacked on some of what Dr. Moore said and talked about in his interview. And in this clip, Gabe talks about why tone really matters and how we can have the right tone in our conversation in a divided world where people often see us as extreme and irrelevant. Yeah, tone matters so much. And, and I think it's it's now people are paying attention to it a a lot more like our tone and our posture. And it's not that it's some gimmick, you know, where you just try to say something in a nicer way. It's, it's actually a genuineness about respecting other human beings and respecting the other person and respecting to view uh, and treating people in the way you want to be treated. It's, it's a true love of neighbor activity to, um, actually have conversation with people and to, um, practice civility. And, and I think it actually honors God and glorifies God. It, it takes a bit of the pride and power out of seeing our role in these things and making too much of them. Um, but I think it also allows people to really hear what you're saying. Whereas in the world today where there's so much shouting and, and as Americans, again, as I stated earlier, 95% think the extremes are getting all the airtime. Uh, because of how they shout, how they say it, because they don't mind, you know, kind of mixing it up in a way that that's combative. And for some, that's really entertaining. I think in the midst of that, what people really are longing for is to be listened to, to be heard, to have conversations. I mean, our research has shown so many things like, um, and it's a contentious issues around gay marriage, for example, that if you just come out in a conversation and tell somebody, I think gay marriage is wrong, for example, um, it shuts down the conversation. There's no conversation. But if you actually begin the conversation by saying, hey, I've, I've studied this, I've really been thinking a lot about it, and I have some concerns about gay marriage, and, and I'm not sure that this is the best way, and what, tell me what you think, and you listen, and then you're able to have a little bit of a conversation that two out of three people say they'd carry on that conversation. It would be a good conversation because there was an openness, there was an empathy, there was a humility in what we believe that doesn't just assume everybody has to believe it or should believe it or does believe it. Um, but that part of belief is that, uh, we have faith and we believe and we want to persuade people in a, uh, through kindness, um, not through being dogmatic. And so that's why I think tone and posture today, you know, our new generation of people are so sensitive to it. You know, you could credit that to a politically correct kind of environment and culture they've been raised in. You know, some more negatively would say, you know, children have been coddled and not really been exposed well to that difference is okay. But however you slice it, if you want to be heard, you're going to have to communicate in a way that actually respects and honors the other person and doesn't just assume you're the smartest person in the room and you're there to educate them. Man, if we can just do those things that Dr. Moore and Gabe talk about in their interviews, it would be so interesting to me to see how different the tone would be, not just on social media, but at conferences, in conversations, you know, in the work that we're doing around the world. 
if we could just engage each other in healthy ways, in life-giving ways, I think it would bring such tremendous and amazing flourishing in all the communities that we're working in. And that really helps us to transition into our last uh, segment here, which is how can we really engage in all this suffering and injustice in our world? How can we enter in to situations that seem so hopeless? How can we enter into things that are just, we don't even want to believe exist? And how can we not only enter into them, but really seek excellence in them to, to really bring best practices into these conversations and to hopefully really bring about true kingdom building, long-term, real change that helps these kids, helps every child and every adult that we're working with, with to flourish in ways that they've never seen before. And in episode 36, Krista Sharp with International Justice Mission talks about just that, how we can enter into this tremendous suffering and things that we don't want to enter into. And actually, often, we want to even pretend that it isn't even happening. And that's what Krista talks about in this clip. It's easier not to see these things. And I think there's just because of the growth of internet and media, we see need in every area around our own communities and around the world, and it can get overwhelming. Um, and so I think what we first do is just ask people um, to kind of do two things. You know, I think often it can get overwhelming for folks when the ask might be, oh, my gosh, get involved, move overseas, do this, you know, or some kind of right. huge, <laughs> huge ask. Um, but the first thing is really to just start praying about it um, and looking in God's word at what he talks about or how he sees people in pain, people who live in oppression, um, how he sees abuse. I mean, Psalm 10 is such a... Um, clear example of kind of what oppression looks like and feels like for people and then how God responds to it. Or, and, and once you start, I think, looking at the Bible with an eye towards what does God say about people who are abused or oppressed and, and what does God say about justice and how we are supposed to use our power and influence in those situations. It's everywhere. Like it's, it's from start to finish. And so um, I think the first thing we ask is just start to ask God what he thinks about all of this and just start praying for those who are suffering. And I think that really opens up the doors to God giving us his spirit of love and courage to see these things, to learn about them, to pray for them, and then to become advocates for those who are suffering. I think the other thing, of course, is just remembering um, our safety and security and freedom that there's, that we have nothing to fear and God calls us not to be afraid. Um, and so we can enter into these things knowing that he is with us, that he is already with these, these children and these people who are suffering. And he has asked us to go to people who suffer. And we can do that in lots of ways. Some of us go physically. Some of us go through prayer. Some of us go through equipping others through fundraising. Some of us go with our voice through advocating for what is right and just. And so, um, but I think we figure out what that is and what God's calling us to and what we're capable of when we first just enter into prayer and into God's word. And then the other thing is just start to get to know these people a little bit. And for some of, of you guys that might be watching a video, going to igym.org and reading a story or watching one of our videos for others that might be starting to volunteer locally. 
Yeah. That's what I did for years yeah. at my local rape crisis center and my local refugee resettlement agency and just got to know people. And that's when I think you, you stop seeing it um, just in terms of the abuse and the pain, but you also see the hope and the joy because people are filled with resiliency. I mean, these are not just victims we're working with. These are powerful, beautiful, amazing people who are fighting for their own recovery, who are rebuilding their own communities after they're rescued, who are advocating for others, who are just really beautiful people that God designed um, to live in fullness. And so that's that's the amazing part of the story is it's so much bigger than just kind of the one aspect of abuse. This is about this, this, um, eternal call of God on us to walk alongside people who are in pain, to help people live the lives God intended for them and to experience not just the pain of the world, but then the incredible joy that's there when we get to see healing and restoration and growth and miracles. Those words are powerful from Krista, especially when, you know, if you've listened to her interview, you know, the work that she's entering into, the work that she does with International Justice Mission, just one of the things she talked about was cyber sex trafficking. And, and, you know, it's such a, it's such tragic uh, situations and circumstances that they are working in. And for her to be able to say those words in the midst of that, it really is, is something that I think we can all learn from and hopefully be challenged by to enter in, to engage, to really get to know people, to really do all the things that she talked about in that answer and in really in the rest of her interview. Well, in, in episode 32, Phil Tuttle talked about something that, that's really similar to what Krista talked about, but just a little different. It's a little nuanced, a little different. And he talked about in this clip why it's important for any person working in orphan care to really have to enter into their own personal trials, crises, sufferings, and struggles. And here's why he said that was so important. Yeah, because if, you, if you're in orphan care, whether that's as a foster parent or working in an orphanage or, you know, or doing some coaching or life skills development or teacher, you, I mean, you, you pick it or your role, Phil. If we didn't have any crises personally, then where's the common ground to build a relationship mm-hmm. with? And, and it's so easy when we're supposedly on the, well, we're the ones doing the ministry, um, you know, two or four on behalf of other people. Um, So God, why are you letting us struggle? I thought we would have your blessing. We've got to struggle or there's no connection there. And anything that we say will quickly be dismissed as, well, that's great. That works for you because you've got a lot of resources or or your dad is still in your life or or whatever it is. And so I, I think I think the trials we face, same with Joseph, not only they're essential for our own character, but that's what builds the bridge um, to those that God's called us to love and serve. Those words from Phil really paint a picture of what Christ did when he entered into this world so that he would know the suffering, he would know the temptations that we encounter. And he obviously suffered more than any of us ever will so that we don't have to suffer eternally. That's something that we can really enter into people's suffering, something that we can take that Christ example and enter into others' lives so that we hopefully can help them to get to that point where they can see the hope of Christ. They can see the hope that they have that will hopefully encourage them to know they have gifts and talents that can be used for amazing things in this world. And again, bring flourishing not just to their lives, but to the communities that surround them. Well, 
that brings us to our last clip for this highlight show. Um, episode 39, Victor Marks, part two of his interview with me. He had both episode 38 and 39. And this was really towards the end of that second part. And it was in the response to the question that we ask everybody, which is what have you been reading, listening to, or watching recently that, that so has impacted your life? to help serve and love the orphan and vulnerable children around you with excellence. This is how he responded to that answer. And I just hope that it inspires you like it inspires me to keep running this race with excellence and in ways that glorify and honor God. I think I've read people's lives. Yeah. I've seen kids, you know, an an eight year old girl that was held for seven months, ISIS. That changes things. Mm. You know, you feel the you feel the sweat of the hands on yours. You see, you see the reflection of terror of what they experience in their eyes, and uh, that's why we keep going back. Mm. That's why we're moving to the region to set up stuff, and, and that's why we'll never stop helping right. because of the the kids. Wow. I know that so many of you out there can relate with those words that Victor just shared. And with so many other things that he talked about, about trauma and so many other things in his interview. And I hope that we take those words, that we take those things, we take those experiences that we've had that have changed us, that has wrecked us and have caused us to really know our calling to help love and help care for the orphan and vulnerable children around the world. And we will take these experiences. We will take the suffering that we've entered into. We will take those things that we have learned and we will apply them in ways that do bring about flourishing in the lives of the children that that we're working with, in the communities that we're in, that we will help everyone that we come in contact with to flourish, that we will be salt and light in this world, that will help to glorify our God and will help to bring shalom to the world around us. Well, with that, we're going to bring this episode to a close. This season two highlight show, I was so excited to get this, get this going, to get this happening, to, to review these, these episodes, to listen to them again, to bring some highlights, bring some clips to you. And again, these highlights don't even begin. I mean, they, they just begin to show you um, and to, to bring to you the greatness from these, for these people that I was able, that Kelly was able to interview in season two. Well, in a couple weeks, we're going to bring you to you season three. And, you know, I got some some bad news for you. Um, Kelly uh, is not going to be able to be with us in season three for various reasons. But she might be back in season four. We're hoping that that might be able to happen. But I have uh, some really good news for you too, though. We do have a great co-host coming your way that I'm super excited about. I'm not going to tell you any specifics about who it is, except that she was one of the guests um, in season one or season two. I'm going to leave you a little bit of suspense there. So you can come back in season three in a couple weeks. We're going to kick off season three with a couple episodes, a two-part episode with Michael Miller, who was the director and producer of Poverty Inc. and Poverty Cure. So you're in for a treat there. You're in for a treat with with some of these great guests that we have lined up for season three as well. 
So take everything that you've learned in this highlight show, take everything that you've learned so far in this podcast and really apply it to your lives in ways that help you to continually challenge yourself to be thinking more and more about how you and those around you can love orphaned and vulnerable children more and more every day with more and more excellence. Thanks a lot. And I hope that you have a great couple weeks before we get back together for season three. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.